You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. Sitting across the table today from Major General Mike Ennis, retired from the Marine Corps. Uh, General Ennis is a graduate of Concordia College, where he got his bachelor's degree, and uh, from Georgetown, where he has his master's, and was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Marines in uh, 1972. Uh, In 1978, he went and joined the Foreign Area Officer Program, became a Russian FAO, as it's called, Served in a variety of positions, uh, both in the Pacific and in Europe, including in the United States Military Liaison Mission in Germany. Uh, He was uh, an attaché in Moscow, a U.S. military representative to Azerbaijan, a variety of other positions. Um, And the the last two positions he held in the government, which will be the subject of our uh, interview today, was as at DIA as head of Defense Human. And then as the first Deputy Director for Community Human Intelligence with the National Clandestine Service uh, over at CIA. Uh, Today, General Ennis is retired, and he uh, retired from the government, and he works at SCIC as the Senior Vice President for Risk and International Security. So without further ado, General Mike Ennis, uh, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Thanks, Mark. Pleasure to be here. Now... um, we're going to focus on, on your last couple of government positions here, uh, and, and just briefly on your, your time at DIA. Uh, you actually came to the National Clandestine Service from being head of Defense Human, a job you had, if I understand correctly, from 2004 to 2006. Correct. What is Defense Human? What's their function, and, and as, their, as their leader for that time, what, what were your responsibilities? Defense Human is actually uh, uh, is part of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, uh, we have Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, and Coast Guardmen uh, uh, in the uh, in Defense Human, uh, and uh, uh, it it involves three things. Uh, number one, we have our military attaches, our military attaché system throughout the world. I think we're represented in so, over a hundred different countries, uh, where we will have Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine and Coast Guard attaches, not necessarily in every country. It depends uh, what we like to mirror the uh, uh, 
the military capability and organization of a particular country. If I can just interrupt you there, you were kind enough to lash us up with uh, U.S. Army Colonel retired Jim Cox. Uh, we did an interview with him about being an attache in Moscow, right. which uh, should be online fairly soon. But anyway, go ahead. Okay. So you, Defense Human owns the attaches. That, and that is a very large program. Uh, 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 and uh, at the role of the attaché is to serve as a counterpart to the military uh, uh, service uh, in, in, in a particular country, uh, act as a liaison, but also to gather information about the organization personalities uh, uh, and uh, get an idea of what, uh, what are the current topics of interest, as well as meeting military counterparts who are attachés from other countries where we would not ordinarily have an opportunity to meet with them. Uh, the second is uh, what we call strategic debriefing. This is not interrogation. Interrogation is, is really more of a battlefield type of a thing, but uh, a, strategic, or a strategic debriefing is a person who may emigrate to this country, who may be of interest and may have a scientific technical background. It's a very non-hostile environment. You sit down and you have someone who is skilled in the art of elicitation to be able to gather, gain trust and gather information from that particular individual, uh, depending on whatever the background is. So we have a, a large number of these people who are skilled at elicitation, they're trained, and uh, uh, specialize in strategic debriefing. Uh, this would also occur for uh, our, our Americans who may be held as a POW, uh, they come back after a long period of time, where we sit down and, uh, and debrief them and gather information. The third aspect is our clandestine side, where we have, uh, uh, much like the, the CIA, where we have our own uh, case officers, uh, but who do exactly the same thing is our CIA case officers, uh, uh, but their focus is on military requirements. Whereas the, the CIA is political, technical, military, DIA, our defense human, focuses on the, the uh, strictly military aspects. So these are the three components that make up the defense human uh, service. So you were head of the Defense Human Service until 2006, and then you were asked to come over to the National Clandestine Service to be the first Deputy Director for Community Human, Community Human Intelligence there. Uh, how did you happen to, to, to get that job? I believe you were slated to go elsewhere in the, in the normal course of things. I was slated to go elsewhere. I, uh, let me preface it, if I may, by saying that uh, uh, the National Clandestine Service was formed in large part as, a, as one of the recommendations of the 9-11 uh, 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 Commission. Uh, the, prior to that, you had your Directorate of Operations and the Director of CIA who had two hats. One was running the CIA, but the other was the Director of Central Intelligence, basically being the shepherd or leader, if you will, of the intelligence community. The 9-11 Commission felt that the, uh, the, that the, director, of Central, the, the uh, director of the CIA was not spending enough time uh, uh, shepherding the larger intelligence community. So by changing the Directorate of Operations under the CIA to the National Clandestine Service, it basically gave the CIA the lead role in being not only the clandestine service, but the leader for human intelligence within the intelligence community. Uh, 
the, the big change organizationally was instead of just having one deputy director of the clandestine service, they now have two. Uh, the second one being focused on coordinating and synchronizing human operations between the 16 or 17 uh, organizations within the intelligence community. Other than the CIA. Other than the CIA. The first, uh, the first person that was assigned to this job was a, a career CIA officer. Um, to coordinate the activities of all the non-CIA agencies. all the other non-CIA agencies. And uh, uh, I, at the time, uh, uh, in December, along about December, I guess, of 2005, as I was finishing up my tour at Defense Human, I was scheduled to go be the chief of staff uh, for General Casey at uh, Multinational Force Iraq, which I was looking forward to because not many intelligence officers get an opportunity to be a chief of staff uh, for a major combatant command. Matter of fact, the only other uh, intelligence officer to ever hold such a position was General Mike Hayden uh, when he was the chief of staff for the U.S. Forces Korea. And he went out to, on to become director of the National Security Agency and director of the CIA. And director of the CIA. And I believe also deputy director, director of, national of national intelligence. intelligence right, an auspicious Wh career. Which, <laughs> which is the role that he held, the deputy director of national intelligence, when I got a call from him in December of uh, 2005. And uh, uh, he mentioned to me that... Uh, uh, that they were actually going to make a change out at the CIA or the National Clandestine Service. They were going to take the person who was in that depth the community position and actually they wanted a military person in that role to give it more of a community flavor. And uh, he told me that they wanted me, the, the DNI wanted me to go out and fill that position. And I explained to General <coughs> Hayden that I was actually going to uh, Iraq to be General Casey's chief of staff. Uh, and I was looking forward to getting my boots dirty, and uh, um, and I was pretty sure that, uh, and I had reservations about the job because I felt that if I got out there, um, they were going to give me you know a nice office and a fancy title. Uh, but uh, uh, when it really came to, and, and I, I wouldn't be liked within the community, I would be, uh, the DO was a very uh, protective organization. You'd, you'd be a foreign body that oh, they'd want to reject. Oh, I'd be a foreign body, exactly, that they'd want to reject. And when it came time to really getting in, into any substantive uh, 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 knowledge or activity, uh, that I would be kind of shunted off to the side. So all of this was going on in the back of my mind uh, as I was on my cell phone. I think I was in Romania at the time. And uh, so I said to General Hayden, I said, uh, you know, sir, I, I appreciate the offer, but I'm uh, really going to have to take this other job with the chief of staff. And he said, Mike, that is not an offer. And I realized that I, my, my fate had been sealed. <laughs> and I said, well, somebody's going to have to tell the Commandant of the Marine Corps because it certainly isn't me. And he said, we'll take care of that. And the next thing you know, um, I'm on my way out to the CIA. And as I mentioned, I had, uh, uh, I had some real reservations of going, going out there. And uh, one of them was they were going to give me a fancy office and, uh, uh, you know, a nice title. Well, that turned out not to be true. You probably got the fancy office. No, I got a closet uh, when I went out there <laughs> initially. Initially, uh, but when I when I uh, when everything settled out, it, it was fine. And and I have to say that uh, Jose Rodriguez, who is the uh, uh, director of the National Clandestine Service, uh, brought me in and said, you know, Mike, if you are gonna if you're gonna earn the the respect and the credibility in this job, 
He said, if you are going to go out and explain to others, other members within this community, about the CIA, how we do business, and why we do business the way we do, you have to fully understand and be aware of our activities and how we do and why we do the things that we do. And so instead of putting me off to the side, where I would have been a real pariah, he brought me inside the tent where I was really able to, to feel like I understood the culture, not just the individual activities, but the culture and the mindset, which helped me immensely in trying to work with other organizations who didn't necessarily understand that culture. Yeah, so let me ask you then, what's it like being a Marine at the CIA? Uh, obviously, the Marines are decidedly not the CIA, but I think there are also maybe some cultural similarities. Did, did you find that to be true, and oh, did that help in assimilating Mark, and, and get along, getting along with folks? Absolutely. Uh, uh, what I found is that uh, the, the culture of the CIA is very much uh, the, uh, akin to the culture of the Marine Corps. In what way? Number of ways. Uh, number one, in the Marine Corps, all of our officers are trained to be intelligence officers. I mean, excuse me, all of our officers are trained to be infantrymen, infantry officers. Uh, you, you, you're, you're inside the National Clandestine Service and the DO, everybody is equal. They all go through the farm. Everybody goes through that training. So no matter where you are in the world, you may not like a colleague, but you know that person has walked the same walk, who's been through the same training program that you've been. And so there's that kinship right off the bat. Number three, the Marine Corps is very much into mission-oriented orders. What I mean by that is, here is your mission. It's up to you how you go about and accomplish it. And they don't tell you every step of the way. They don't say do A, B, C, a, B, C D, and D, E. They no. just they say, say, we want you to get to you. E. That's right. And you go do that. And that's the way the agency is. This is what needs to be done. Here are the resources. Go get it done. And there is a, there's an esprit de corps. I won't call it elitism necessarily, but there is an element of that, if you will, within the Marine Corps and within the CIA. We feel like we're the best at what we do. And that, too, breeds a certain, uh, 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 is part of the culture. What it does is it brings the best to the surface, if you will. You always, you always want to live up to that image. You always want to live up to that reputation. And uh, so I, it, was not, it was not entirely surprising when I went out there to find so many former Marines uh, uh, out at the agency. And so it was very, uh, uh, it was very comfortable. You know, when, when you mentioned this to me earlier, as we were arranging this interview, I started thinking about the people I'd known at CIA. And you know, I think you're right. It, I, I, I knew a lot of former Marines at the CIA. Mm -hmm. You know, ones and twos from the Army mm -hmm. and the Air Force and whatnot, but I knew quite a few Marines I worked and with. And not only just out there, but in senior positions, Steve Kappas. Those were not the circles I moved in, right. but I, I know you're correct, yes. Steve Kappas, Deputy Director of the CIA and former uh, uh, head of the, uh, uh, the Directorate of Operations. Rob Richer, Deputy Director of Operations out there. Mike Sulik, uh, uh, the Director of the National Clandestine Service. Whom we interviewed recently as well. Yes, and the current Director of the National Clandestine Service, John Bennett, all Marines. Uh, John was a Force Reconnaissance Marine, Harvard graduate, very sharp individual. That's got to be an unusual combination, Force Recon and the Marines and a Harvard graduate. That's right, and a uh, very sharp individual. And uh, so, yes. Uh, That'll be somebody for us so to get to interview here as well when the time comes. <laughs> all right, so 
Um, as deputy director for of the National Clandestine Service for Community Human, you were involved in sort of coordinating and deconflicting. I think you said about 16 or 17 other agencies, human operations other than CIA. Right. 16 or 17? That's a whole lot. Can you give us a flavor? Like, who are we talking about here? I, I would not have guessed it would have been anywhere near that many. Well, if I could, I'll just uh, uh, ease into that. I'll, I'll get to the, the question, but if I could just give you an idea how this all came about, it may be enlightening. Uh, during the Cold War, from the initial the Cold War, the clandestine covert type activity was almost overseas, was exclusively the realm of the, uh, almost exclusively the realm of the Central Intelligence Agency. In 1983, uh, things began to change a little bit with the uh, uh, increase in terrorist activities. The first major incident we had was the uh, bombing of the Marine Barracks in, uh, uh, in Beirut and then the bombing of the embassy shortly thereafter. This was not a call to arms necessarily, but there still was not a great uh, uh, presence other than CIA overseas in terms of working with liaison services and recruiting spies, stealing secrets, traditional uh, activities of the CIA. Things began to change a little bit more when the Kobar Towers were bombed uh, in the late 90s in Saudi Arabia. The Office of Special Investigations, the uh, 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 Air Force uh, arm, uh, felt that it needed to protect uh, its bases overseas. And so you, what you saw was an increased presence of OSI agents overseas, uh, recognizing that this problem of terrorism was much larger than perhaps the CIA could handle all alone, and so they started putting agents out. They felt it was in their best interest to start doing counterintelligence, human-type operations overseas to protect these facilities. Then came the bombing of the embassies in Tanzania, Dar es Salaam, and in uh, Kenya, Nairobi. And all of a sudden, the FBI, who is responsible for the security of U.S. property overseas, U.S. embassies overseas, began to send its individuals out and you had what we call legal attaches starting to appear in embassies. And that was the Louis Free area, era. Right. And that was, as I recall, really quite controversial at the time. He, he was really rocking the boat, at least from the perspective right. of CIA, by from doing the, that. Exactly. Oh, very much so. And then you had the USS Cole incident. And then NCIS started getting involved overseas and they were conducting operations in Bahrain and in other Middle Eastern areas and sometimes they would be working at cross purposes for what the CIA was doing and all of a sudden what you had is a playing field and then Defense Human became more involved then you had 9-11 coming along and JSOC or Special Operations Command started putting out these military liaison elements uh, overseas, and the playing field became very, very crowded. And I think also, correct me if I'm wrong here, it was after 9-11 that the New York Police Department either creates or reinvigorates its intelligence division, which also starts sending people overseas. Did they fall into your orbit as uh, while you were at the National Clandestine Service? Only tangentially. Okay. Only tangentially. The, the New York Police Department, for the most part, they were not collecting intelligence to try to protect America necessarily. But what they did do is, in the aftermath of bombings overseas, like in Madrid or London, they would send people over there to learn more about 
how and where these suspects came from. They were, they were concerned very much about the homegrown threat so then they could put in measures back inside of New York City. Uh, so they really did not conflict with, they didn't conflict with, the, uh, uh, with what the, the clandestine service was doing or some of these other organizations. It was more tangential and uh, it really wasn't duplicative, although there were a number of people who were very concerned about what they were doing, but uh, truth be told, it was very, uh, they, were, they were in their lane okay. doing what they needed to do. So. Uh, so you have your NCIS from the Navy, you've got your OSI from the Air Force, you've got your uh, CID from the Army, you have your defense human uh, uh, folks, you've got uh, the Drug Enforcement Agency who now, uh, because terrorists are selling drugs to get money, uh, uh, are involved. So the DEA was gathering information uh, and sometimes recruiting folks overseas. You have your Department of Energy, which is looking for the transfer of nuclear fissile material, gathering information. You have uh, the uh, Treasury Department, Secret Service. Uh, you've got, in, in, in both for counterfeiting and for, uh, uh, for counterfeiting, but also presidential security. Uh, and uh, pretty soon, it becomes a crowded field, and traditionally, in embassies overseas, the chief of station, the, the, the head CIA, is the one who's responsible for coordinating a lot of these activities. Well, some of these chiefs of station don't have the background, uh, the experience to coordinate well, and it's, it's more like, hey, this is our territory than us. And I'm not going to say that this is the case all the time. And there are many stations where the chiefs of station were very, very accommodating and felt that they would work together as a team, but others who were less experienced uh, or, or were getting pressure back from the headquarters would be in a position to say to an organization, no, you can't do this. So what are you able to do then from headquarters to ameliorate those kinds of problems? What, what can you do to make these folks play nice and, and, and cooperate? Well, one of the things that we did is we, uh, there were a number of things that we did. Uh, first of all, we would bring the heads of the, uh, the 17 organizations uh, within the intelligence community together once a quarter out to CIA and we would put together an agenda always focused on coordination, synchronization, uh, 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 and uh, the, the director of CIA was always there as well as the director of the clandestine service. It was a very high-level meeting and we would explain why coordination was important and we would air differences generally. We wouldn't necessarily get into a specific operation, uh, but uh, uh, the, it, was the, it was the idea to bring the leadership together and then for them to push down into their organization the importance of coordination and synchronization of, of activities. Number two, it was uh, put, putting together courses, training, and awareness. Uh, sometimes you would think in an organization like the FBI and the, the CIA, which historically over the years there's been a lot of headbutting, okay? But when you dissect the problem a little bit and you look at the FBI, the FBI essentially is a law enforcement organization. Their role is to capture bad guys and lock them up. The CIA, on the other hand, 
looks at bad guys as a source of information and uh, wants to continue running that person. And so you have one organization that gets credit for locking people up and you have another organization who gets credit for getting information out of these people and developing more. And so you have a clash of cultures more than anything else. And, and those are both perfectly legitimate missions given where those agencies missions. each come from. Exactly. Uh, and then you have the, the, the DOD, which has requirements overseas, and a chief of station may say, no, you can't do that. Well, if the Secretary of Defense puts a requirement out into the field that he wants to have collected, and the chief of station says no to the local operative who's supposed to fulfill that requirement, what you have is a chief of station essentially telling the sec overruling the Secretary of Defense. Now, there may be a valid reason for not doing that, but it has to be explained in such a way that you know the, the, the individual understands. It may be and has uh, cover from his organization. Cover from his organization. It could be too dangerous to run right now. We have alternate means of getting that. We've already collected that information here. You can have it. And what what we tried to do uh, when we have courses with the new chiefs of station going out is try to provide them with the tools and examples of how you can collaborate with these folks and not necessarily run them over. Because what was going to happen if you continually say no, they're going to go around your back and that's when the real trouble begins. And we've had instances of that in certain countries where organizations have just been tired of saying no or been being told no and they go behind the back. So it was putting together training courses, and I'll get to that in a moment, but uh, awareness uh, uh, examples, and then working with individuals. And every once in a while we would get one that was so sensitive or so uh, uh, acrimonious that we would deal from back in the headquarters actually with chiefs of station or others that were in a particular area. And, and it wasn't always that the CIA was the bad guy. I mean, we had other actors who were just intent on doing it their way and it wasn't good for the for the US it wasn't good for the uh, ambassador would I be on safe ground imagining and you can decline to answer this if you want that the FBI was perhaps one of the more difficult ones to sort of uh, bring into this happy family they they were difficult but what the CIA did or the FBI did excuse me the FBI did is they uh, uh, formed a national security branch whose focus was more on intelligence and intelligence gathering and by doing that they brought that organization more into line with what the CIA was doing. But one of the things we have to remember is when you have two cultures that are very different, uh, it's going to take a while. Uh, you have to bring in a whole new group. Uh, you have to bring in a, a whole, to change a culture, you, that takes a long time. Uh, I would say it's generational, at least 20 years. And, and, and the example that I use is the, uh, uh, the Goldwater-Nichols Act of 1986. After the, uh, after the United States invaded the great country of Grenada uh, in the Caribbean, uh, and, and I'm, I'm being Which was a bit of a goat rope. Which was, I'm being slightly <laughs> facetious here, but only, for, only to make a point. I think the only thing that the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines coordinated on was which day they were all going to attack, okay? And it was, it was pretty bad. And the services were essentially forced by law to become joint. In 1986, 
I know in 2006, 20 years later, there are some services that were still reluctant to have their, uh, uh, to send officers to joint training because they didn't consider it important. But I think we're largely getting over that now. I think with the recent experience we've had in Afghanistan and Iraq, we have seen the benefit of jointness. Yes, there's still going to be competition, but if you bring together the capabilities of the four major services, you will end up ultimately with a better product. We're not there yet with coordination and synchronization within the intelligence community. It's going to take a while to understand these cultures. One of the things that uh, we did while I was there is we put together a, a school where we brought uh, operatives from the various organizations together and we talked about, we talked about their culture, we talked about their mission, we talked about their legal capabilities, we talked about their legal uh, 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 limitations, and what we found was that people who had impressions about the capabilities or limitations of another service, that many of these were unfounded and they really didn't understand what other organizations could do. And, and some of these were Immigration and Customs Enforcement or uh, Customs and Border Protection, CBP, or uh, uh, Immigration and Naturalization, uh, various ways, people who had access to information that others didn't necessarily know, people who had authorization to do things that others weren't aware of. And what we found is when people went to this, well, before I get into that, I would say the final exercise was we generated a final exercise, an operational exercise, and we had uh, teams that would include at least six members of the intelligence community. From six, six different six agencies. Six different agencies. And it was, the exercise was scripted so that you could not succeed unless you used the capabilities of all six. There was something in there. If you didn't utilize that, whether it be Coast Guard or CBP or whatever, could not successfully complete the exercise force them to collaborate and force them to understand and utilize the resources of the other agencies in order to solve the problem. One of the most, the, the feedback that we continue to get on that, on that course is tremendous. It, very much of an eye-opener and it's at the lower level. Uh, it's people who are growing up in this environment are now going out into the field and actually collaborating with organizations that they never would have collaborated with before. So these efforts that you initiated, uh, and when did you leave that position again? Uh, in September of 2008. Okay, so those efforts have been continuing. They, are, they continue, and they continue to be successful. That's right. So if, if I can summarize that, and I don't, correct me if you disagree here, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you feel like you were pretty successful not in revolutionizing things, but maybe laying the groundwork and starting these processes that begins this sort of generational acculturation uh, uh, that will will fully bear its fruit 15, 20 years from now. Absolutely, exactly. I certainly can't take credit for everything that's, that's happening, but I feel very com comfortable with the fact that we laid the groundwork uh, and we continue now to build on that uh, the groundwork, or that framework, if you will. But this is something that's going to take a long time. 
last, uh, last question here, and we're going to bring together here in this question uh, some of the things we talked about with regard to Defense Human and some of the things we've just been talking about now with uh, uh, um, the National Clandestine Service and different cultures of different agencies. Uh, recently there was a proposal, and, and I believe it's at this point stalled, but a very interesting proposal to vastly increase uh, DIA's clandestine operations, mm -hmm. its espionage overseas. Um, by increasing the number of case officers. Mm -hmm. And this attracted a lot of attention in Congress, among other places. I I'm curious, as somebody with some, some, some major expertise in this field, what's your, what's your thought on that proposal? Is it, is it a good idea for, DA for DIA to um, greatly increase its number of case officers uh, overseas to meet its own needs? Well, let me start by saying I think it's uh, I think what General Flynn, the director of DIA, is doing uh, is he is putting much more of an operational bent into DIA. Heretofore, Defense Intelligence Agency has been largely an analytic organization. Uh, the uh, uh, emphasis on operations, the defense human uh, part, has been much less. Whereas out at CIA, it is almost exclusively, I mean, the director of operations is the big dog. And yes, the director of analysis is extremely important, but it is in a supportive role. It is the director of operations. But it was the other way around at DIA. It's the other way around at DIA, absolutely. And uh, um, I think a big factor in uh, the decision to uh, put more emphasis on intelligence operations at DIA was Special Operations Command because they understood the importance of intelligence in conducting its operations. The two went hand in hand. You get information, you act on it. You get information from that action and you act on it again. One leads to the next. And special operations require very, very fine-grained intelligence, very micro-level stuff, right. sometimes down literally to like which direction does the door open, which is not the kind of intelligence that That's CIA right. typically specializes in collecting. That is true, but the relationship between intelligence and operations is, is, is very tight. And that was never really the case in, in DIA. The, there was no real connection between the directorate of uh, uh, analysis uh, and the directorate of operations, if you will, whereas at CIA it's much tighter. And uh, intelligence really didn't drive operations that much. So I think what General Flynn is doing out of DIA is, 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 is very good and very commendable. Uh, the, the issue of uh, the number of case officers, uh, personally I would uh, uh, before I would increase the number of case officers, uh, I would seriously want to look at the, uh, uh, the support network that you have to uh, support those case officers. One of the uh, things that I saw out at the CIA was they have a tremendous support network uh, supporting those case officers in the field. Uh, targeteers, analysts, uh, uh, subject matter experts, uh, infrastructure, that type of thing. Reports officers. Reports or, officers. I think they're called uh, yeah. collection management collection officers ma now. CMOs, exactly. Great support network so that the case officer can focus on recruiting and uh, uh, developing. Whereas at DIA, that support network didn't really exist. So uh, to be immediately effective, uh, what you, uh, you know, instead of going out and hiring more case officers, I would certainly want to consider providing the necessary support network that makes the existing number of case officers far more effective. Uh, because if you just go get more case officers, you kind of exacerbate the existing problem. 
uh, your tooth to tail ratio will actually get worse instead of better. But uh, uh, that will come in time. That will come in time. I certainly would, uh, uh, I, I like the idea of our DIA case officers working more hand in glove with our CIA. Uh, the CIA uh, has many, many requirements that needs to ful fulfill economic, political, um, terrorist related. And I think they would welcome, frankly, I know they would welcome if they had their DIA counterparts focus more on the military uh, requirements that are out there that many times the CIA has to pick up simply because the DIA doesn't have the wherewithal. And it's not a question of quality of individual. That's not the case at all. The uh, military case officers, they're trained in the same place as the CIA. Uh, they're in the same classes. They're not segregated. Uh, they are, in many cases, they're, they're more uh, mature and experienced. They have military experience. Uh, but it is a question of capability. You know, what, do, do they have the resources to, to help support them? And, uh, and once, we, once DIA resolves that, I think they're going to have a very effective force that will be able to complement the CIA much more effectively. Good. Well, General Mike Ennis, you've, you've given us much to think about here today. Unfortunately, our time has run out, but uh, we really appreciate you sharing your insights on uh, human intelligence and espionage and, and how to bring the various disparate parts of the intelligence community together. So thank you so much for joining us here at the International Spy Museum. Thank you for the opportunity. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month.